And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Monday, November 13th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, what federal largesse looks like from a state budget official's perspective. Plus, how DOD and the Small Business Administration encourage investment in critical technologies. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, women in some racial minority groups are fairly well represented in government compared to the nationwide workforce, but certain groups are still behind. Reports from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission show three specific groups that are falling behind. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got details from EEOC social scientists Olisi Sawatu and Karen Brummond. You hear Sawatu first. Where we start seeing issues is when we start talking about um, representation and leadership, primarily in pay. American Indian and Alaska Native women, their participation rate in the federal sector is 0.8% compared to 0.3% in the CLF. African-American women, their representation in the federal sector is 11.7% compared to 6.6% in the CLF. So we see they're doing really well in that regard. The federal sector is doing really well in that regard. However, when it comes to leadership, this is where we start seeing that they are underrepresented as um, executives, managers, and supervisors compared to representation, I should say, in the federal sector. And we also see where American Indian and Alaska Native women they're earning 68% on a dollar compared to the government-wide average. Um, African-American women are earning 88 cents on a dollar um, compared to the government-wide average. And Karen, I know that your report focused specifically on Hispanic and Latina women in the federal workforce. So tell me, were there similarities or differences to these other two reports in your research? For Hispanic women and Latinas, there are some different findings than what was found for American Indian and Alaska Native women and for Black and African American women. Hispanic women and Latinas are underrepresented in the federal workforce. While they made up 6.2% of the civilian labor force nationwide, they only accounted for 4.5% of federal employees. They also resigned from the federal workforce at a rate almost twice the average for all employees government-wide. About 4.5% of Hispanic women and Latinas resigned in FY 2020 compared to 2.3% of all employees. Another difference um, between the reports was that Hispanic and Latina women uh, held first-line supervisory positions in the federal agencies at a higher rate than their participation in the federal workforce. But like American Indian and Alaska Native women and Black and African American women, they were underrepresented in the higher leadership positions. They were underrepresented as managers and executives. Similar to the other groups, uh, they were paid less than the government-wide average. Their uh, pay was 82 cents on the dollar compared to the average federal employee. And just quickly for clarification here, when you talk about the civilian labor force, or CLF for short, is that a measure of the private sector workforce? Does it include state and local governments? Or what is really the comparison here? 
it includes all employees in the United States, um, civilian um, employees in the United States, everyone, including federal, state, all employees. Thank you. And you both spoke about disparities in leadership positions and the pay gaps that exist for these groups. But generally for the government, the pay system doesn't leave a lot of room for variability. So to me, it's a little bit surprising that there is still a pay gap here. Is that just based on the positions that these employees hold or where does that pay gap come from? We do have a lot of mechanisms in place in the federal sector to sort of prevent these kinds of things of occurring. In fact, Federal employees tend to, on average, earn more than what they would earn in the CLF. The pay gaps are actually smaller um, in the federal sector compared to the CLF, at least for most pop- for most um, populations. Um, however, within the federal government, we do still find um, persistent disparities across the groups with respect to pay. Currently, we don't have an explanation for why why that's the case. We see that the pay gaps are there now. You know, we acknowledge that as an emerging issue, and then it becomes a question of. Why is that there and what to do about it? And Karen, what about you? Was there anything in your report specifically that you want to highlight in terms of the pay gaps here? For Hispanic women and Latinas, we do have specific numbers on that. Among Hispanic and Latina women um, nationwide, they were paid 72 cents on the dollar. Um, However, in federal government, Hispanic and Latina women we're making 82 cents on the dollar compared to employees government-wide. We do see a substantial gap, but, um, you know, we need to dig further if we want to find out why it's different in the federal government. Previous research, such as that done by the Government Accountability Office, has found that differences in occupation tend to explain a lot of that, but then getting to the root cause of those differences in occupation takes a lot to go into. And these, as Mike said, are really broad reports, just identifying where where the statistics are right now, getting the baseline, and then future research would have to be done to identify the causes of these, which will vary group to group and They may vary organization to organization. Where did the basis of these reports come from, or why did your team decide to drill down on these specific areas? How does this fit into the broader work that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission does? These reports were meant to be drill downs as an opportunity to sort of identify things that we saw in the annual report that we thought may be happening. As we drill down, now we can confirm that these things are happening. We've identified an emerging issue. And what happens is that future opportunities now may bring us in a direction of explaining why these things are happening. Within these current three reports, we've talked about disparities in leadership, disparities in pay. Aside from those, were there any other findings that really stood out to you when you were doing this research? In the Hispanic Women and Latinas report, one thing that wasn't planning on analyzing in the report was the difference between resignations and retirements. The original plan was just to look at voluntary separations, that is, resignations and retirements combined. When I saw that Hispanic women and Latinas had a high rate of voluntary separations, it did lead me to want to dig a little further. And that led to the finding that um, resignations were the driving force of Hispanic women and Latinas leaving the federal government. 
among the African-American employees, African-American women, I should say, um, we did observe differences in voluntary separations compared to the government-wide average. But I think the more important factors were those pay gaps and also the drop-off that occurs as we move from, at least among American Indian and Alaska Native, as well as the African-American women, as we move from supervisor managers to executives. The gaps become larger between their representation in leadership and their representation in the workforce as we move up that executive ladder. So that's going to be one of those things that we have to look out for. EEOC social scientists Olisi Sawatu and Karen Brummond. Speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how DOD and the Small Business Administration encourage investment in critical technologies. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Small Business Administration and the Defense Department recently launched an effort to boost private capital investment in critical technologies. The program will provide federal guarantees to investments in companies the Defense Department considers critical. Joining me with details, the SBA's Associate Administrator for the Office of Investment and Innovation, Bailey DeVries. Ms. DeVries, good to have you back. Good to be here. Thank you for the invitation today. And for clarity, this is not one of the efforts that I know SBA is involved with and DOD is involved with to get commercial products over the so-called valley of death or to get new products into commercialization. This sounds like it's more aimed at getting the products developed in the first place. Tell us what's going on. Yes. Yeah, so we'll cover the spectrum of early stage through growth and scale up. The way I would think about this is that building on the longstanding and successful relationship that the Department of Defense and SBA have had through the Small Business Innovation Research and Tech Transfer Programs, which do address the federal support of those earliest of ideas for research and development and prototyping and support for commercialization, this is a broader effort to connect capital in the U.S. to those that are developing technologies that seem to be and are known to be critical to our broader U.S. national security. So those could be technologies that are purchased by the Department of Defense, but they might be other technologies that are not going to be procured by the Department of Defense, but we see as vital to our long-term economic stability, growth, and national security. So I hope that that paints the picture of how this is broader. There will be some investors, right, that may invest in that critical stage of commercialization, but there are different needs and gaps in the market today when it comes to critical technology areas. And one of the documents states that this program, it's called SBICCT, and we'll get whatever it is later, it says will support licensing that is additive and complementary to free market activity, avoiding existing areas of efficient and effective market activity. So if something does have commercial appeal or it might be something defense would want, why would capital have not found it in the first place? It's an excellent question. So the way to think about this, right, is that there's always the consideration of relative value, where investors would place dollars based on considerations such as perceived or actual risk, the duration of those investments, 
there are many factors that are considered. And so by the federal government through the Small Business Investment Company program, the SBIC program, which is a 65-year-old longstanding program that was developed during the Eisenhower administration, so that way the federal government could provide additional financial support for funds that are investing in small businesses and startups. Through that program, we are able to shift the risk return of these funds. So I can give you a great example. So of the critical technology areas, there are 14 in total, by the way, some of those areas would require very long duration investment or very capital intensive investment. So if you think about such technology areas as quantum computing or space technology or different facets of the renewable energy market or hypersonics, the duration of these investments and often the capital intensive nature when compared to investments, say, in B2B SaaS, so software as a service type of investments, does not necessarily appeal to return-seeking investors if they have a fiduciary responsibility. However, if through the use of a government-guaranteed loan, we can shift the overall risk return of those pooled investment vehicles, then such investments could be more attractive financially to private market investors. Add to it, through the SBIC Critical Technologies Initiative, the Department of Defense, providing programmatic resources and support to further de-risk those investments, you know, we have conviction that this proven model through the SBIC program will be capable of helping to increase the supply of capital flowing to these technology areas that we have strong belief need greater investment. We're speaking with Bailey DeVries. She's Associate Administrator for the Office of Investment and Innovation at the SBA. So you've got kind of an oversight two-layer challenge, I think, because one, you want to understand that the investors that you are backing don't have backing elsewhere, and the risk is sufficient that the government guarantee should be there. And second, that the companies that they're investing in that are in these critical technologies have some kind of realistic base that they're operating from and are actually viable outfits and not just people, oh, there's a loan guarantee. Let's get some capital. That also is the elegance of the approach of the Small Business Investment Company Program, the SBIC program, where the federal government doesn't work point to point with individual small businesses and startups, but we work with partners with deep expertise in performing due diligence on companies in a particular segment of the market at a particular stage in particular industries. And then they invest in a basket of companies. So typically somewhere between you know 15 to 30 companies would be within a fund structure. And therefore, the risk is pooled and there's an intermediary in the middle that has deep relationships within that part of the market and can allocate capital and allocate risk across that basket to seek to provide a financial return and also advance innovation within their area of focus. So different from other loan guarantee programs that you see in the federal government, where the federal government would be providing direct support to an individual company, the SBIC program solves for that uh, idiosyncratic single company risk and instead supports the growth and development and financing 
of broader baskets, which enables us to advance innovation within different segments of the economy and also work collaboratively with the private sector to advance those technologies and fund the future of innovation. So you and DOD then are not on the hunt for these companies. They are known to risk investors that can pull and roll them up for you for that guarantee. Exactly, exactly. And you're threading, I guess, a pathway among the SBIC program that you mentioned, among the idea of simply research and development grants such as DARPA might award, and then the whole idea of challenge competitions, which are low-dollar types of things intended to kind of float up people that might have great ideas. It's somewhere among all of that. Yeah, so what I would say is different types of financing play a role at different points in the evolution of a company. And they're not all separate and distinct. You have to think about the types of capital you need when and how you might layer them on at various points in time to keep the cost of capital for a growing business as low as possible. So that way they're not servicing debt or decreasing equity to a level where they don't have enough equity available for financial incentives for other employees or investors. So these are all different considerations that I would say that personally have a high degree of conviction that the more we can do to not have gaps and to enable venture equity investment in early stage companies that are also pursuing federal grants or contracts simultaneously, the more likely we will be to nurture these companies and support them on their growth journey, particularly those companies that are frontier technologies that are going to be very capital intensive in nature and often very long duration. And so it's not just going to be a grant that is going to enable the success and sustainability of that company. It is going to be in a range of different types of financing options. Additionally, the opportunity to create uh, stronger networks of subject matter experts and support around a growing company is critical important. It helps with customer relationships. It helps with future financing. It helps with good governance of these businesses. So strengthening the networks around these companies is critically important. And you mentioned there are 14 technology areas. What tops the list here? Yes, I'll give you the list. And this is the Department of Defense. So Research and Engineering, R&E, they publish the 14 critical technology areas. They are biotechnology, quantum science, future generation wireless technology, advanced materials, trusted AI, integrated network system of systems, microelectronics, space technology, renewable energy, advanced computing and software, human machine interfaces, directed energy, hypersonics, and integrated sensing and cyber. Well, that just about covers the waterfront. (laughs) It's an extensive list. And is there money out already under this program? The agreement between DOD and SBA was signed just in late September. So we signed our memorandum of agreement to partner back in March, which was really exciting over at South by Southwest. And then in September, we published our investment policy statement for the program following changes and regulations to the SBIC program. And since then, we have received a number of applications from funds that are interested in applying for an SBIC license under the Critical Technologies Initiative. So we are in the process of performing 
due diligence on those funds through our licensing process and excited about the pipeline of investors that are interested in the program and look forward to sharing more in the uh, the weeks and months ahead. Bailey DeVries is Associate Administrator for the Office of Investment and Innovation at the Small Business Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. I hope you have a great Monday. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, just a week to go, what's likely to happen on Capitol Hill for a shutdown? But first, what federal largesse looks like from a state budget official's perspective. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Among the recent inductees to the National Academy of Public Administration is a former state budget official. For how the federal government looks from a state point of view, we turn to that official, now the executive director of the National Association of State Budget Officers, Shelby Kearns. Ms. Kearns, good to have you with us. Thanks. It's great to be here. And I want to go back to your experience as the budget chief for the state of Idaho not a big state and far from Washington. And I always wonder, given the programs that states administer that the federal government ultimately funds, and therefore state budgets kind of depend in part on what the federal government decides for you every year, what is it like relating to the federal government from the state level? That's a great question. In my experience, the sort of the boots on the ground state employees and the federal program employees, they have great relationships. They're always working toward common goals. People have to concentrate on the the amount of funds that states receive from the federal government and and they think of that as as you know almost a gift. They forget that the federal government has programs and priorities that it's implementing through state governments. So there's a real partnership there that requires communication and working together to address issues. But at the same time, my experience, as you noted, was in a rural state where it could be sometimes difficult to explain some of the more unique challenges that we had, such as maybe when I was working at the Idaho Department of Labor, we would try to explain that we had areas without internet service or cell service, how far people would need to travel for services and other barriers they faced. And of course, similar issues exist in urban areas, but it can be difficult to explain some of those nuances. And of course, there's the political level in the state of Idaho sometimes maybe doesn't agree, you know, as a body politic with some federal policies. Does that ever get in the way of just operating from a budget standpoint? again, in relation to the feds? Sure, it definitely can. It can make it difficult to put a budget together sometimes if you have maybe a governor and a legislature who are looking at that differently. But from a program perspective, a lot of times that tension plays out in which priorities the state wants to carry out on behalf of the federal government. And of course, they can do things their own ways. They can accept or decline federal funding. Um, So we do see that play out a lot in all states. And the development of the state budget itself, my understanding is that states, I don't think any state, can do deficit spending the way the federal government can, but it can float bonds, but not to cover current expenses. So maybe talk about some of the contrasts between the federal budget development, which starts with the agencies and then turns into chaos when it gets delivered to the White House, and how the states operate, which is a June 1st fiscal year. We always say that if you've seen one state, you've seen one state. But in general, state agencies follow the same process as you see on the federal level. They submit funding requests. 
and then governors develop budget proposals and, and legislatures pass budget appropriations. And then governors and executive branch agencies execute those budget appropriations and, and the process sort of starts over. But as you noted, there are some really big differences. Typical state budget practices include that budget balance over a one or two year budget window, um, the regular budget adoption through a standard appropriation process. And there's also proactive planning for contingencies, including through reserves and stress testing. And of course, on the federal level, you have those regular annual deficit spending, and they have a 10-year budget window, and most spending is outside of the regular annual appropriations process. And again, as you noted, that's their primary contingency management tool. So we do wish the federal government understood the state budget process and its constraints better and use that knowledge when developing rules and guidelines around federal funding. There are things like the need for state legislators to appropriate dollars and the limitations on the timing that those legislative sessions impose and those differing fiscal years. So those things are always a challenge. We do work closely with federal agencies on issues around that implementation, but a better understanding and taking those differing processes from the state and federal level into account up front would certainly make things easier. We're speaking with Shelby Kearns. She's executive director of the National Association of State Budget Officers and a new fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. And looking at it from the association standpoint, where you've got all of the state members in your association, I imagine their concerns vary a lot. You know, California is maybe one end of the spectrum. At the other end is a state like Idaho, whose entire population is smaller than some counties in some of the bigger states. That's true, but you'd be amazed at how, when you get a group of budget directors together, how similar the concerns are. You know, some of those top concerns that we talk about, of course, are the economy and what shocks could cause a downturn that impacts everyone. Budget stress testing, that is something that all states look at. And things like preparing for the end of these unprecedented levels of federal funding that states have seen since 2020. So states actively discuss and implement strategies for avoiding a fiscal cliff. That impacts all states. They work on those things together. Yeah, and just to follow up on that idea, because the state legislatures themselves vary a lot. You know, in New Hampshire, at least my experience there a long time ago, was literally a 30-day legislative session, and it was almost like farmer-citizen legislators that go up to Concord, you know, do their business and come home. Many of them went home each night to where they lived. And then, again, you've got some of the states that are big with these long-standing, huge legislatures with their gigantic staffs. And, you know, you look at the Albany state government complex, it's like little Washington. Does that have any effect on the outlook of the way uh, state budget officers think of things? Well, like I said, you see one state, you see one state, but there are commonalities and trying to put together the governor's priorities, trying to pass those priorities, whether you're doing it in a three-month window or whether it's a year-round process with many iterations, there are more commonalities in that process and in the challenges you face than there are differences. So what are the top concerns then collectively for NASPO members, and what's your message to Washington, I guess to Capitol Hill mainly? The main things, um, as I noted 
the our the state of the economy avoiding a fiscal cliff as we move away from federal funding we also issues of employee recruitment and retention both in budget offices and statewide those have been a top concern but of course they're also watching what's happening at the federal level very closely concerns about a federal government shutdown and also future federal appropriations are high on the list and i think the message i hear mostly from states is they wish that the federal budget process would mirror the state budget process a little more with passing appropriation bills and getting back to regular order. And just a detailed question, some of the large states have actuarial obligations they will never be able to pay, mainly related to state employee benefits and pensions, whereas some of the smaller states or the more frugal states don't have that issue. And at some point, those big states, Illinois, California, a lot of people worry they're going to dump their state employee pension obligations on the federal government. Has that come up ever? We have a lot of discussions around pension obligations. You know, through the last few years, states have enjoyed robust tax collections, and we've seen states make progress on making extra payments on their pension obligations. We've also seen many states take actions over the past, you know, maybe 10-year window to provide greater certainty and and really revamp how their pension systems work. So it's always on people's minds and something that they're actively working to address. And finally, what will you do in connection with the National Academy? What's your priority there? What projects will you plan to work on? I'm really excited about the work NAPA does around intergovernmental systems. And just that wealth of experience and passion among NAPA fellows is really energizing. So helping bridge that knowledge gap and improve the way federal programs and funding are administered will be my focus. I'm really looking forward to it. Shelby Kearns is executive director of the National Association of State Budget Officers and a new fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Budget your time to listen. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, just a week to go, what's likely to happen with the budget on Capitol Hill? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It sure came fast, just a work week remaining now until the continuing resolution expires. The fever is building on Capitol Hill to do something to avoid a government shutdown. We get the latest from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And actually, Lauren, before we get to the shutdown prospects, I want to talk about the decision of GSA to move the FBI to Greenbelt, Maryland for its new headquarters. The Virginia delegation not taking that one lying down, are they? They aren't. They are not happy about this decision. Obviously, this is a major project to, I think, $3.5 billion probably in all the investments long term that come with having a major facility. So Virginia, not happy, not happy about a change in criteria that was made along the way um, when I believe the ranking of proximity to Quantico moved down a little bit, which made Virginia a little less favorable. And it seems in the end gave Greenbelt the leg up. You know, something here is this is a lot of Democrats arguing with Democrats. There are Republicans here, too. Um, Obviously, in Virginia, there's Republicans in the delegation plus the governor. But, you know, you you kind of are pitting Jerry Connolly of Virginia and Steny Hoyer of Maryland, who otherwise agree on a lot of things against each other here. So I think that the choice has been made, but maybe the fight goes on and the rhetoric obviously did not calm down um, after this decision was announced and released. And they're calling for an IG investigation then from the Virginia side. 
yes, I think they'll seek that. And there's obviously fights ahead, too, on how to fund this thing. I mean, that was a live issue in one of the spending bill debates last week because the GSA will need the funds to actually get this project underway. Um, and, you know, the FBI itself is sometimes a political football. So there's a ways to go here, even if this decision, which was very key to the process, has been announced. Will Republicans in the House maybe try to hold this up via lack of funding? I mean, in the Trump administration, they killed the whole project and said they were going to rebuild or tear down the current building in downtown D.C. and rebuild there. And Matt Gates was making noise about maybe not funding this. Well, Matt Gates made some pretty, I mean, he made some comments this week about if the building is rat infested, that's where they should stay and, and things like that on the House floor during the debate on whether to do funding for this new project. So I think the FBI is caught up in politics as well because of their role in different political matters and investigations over the last couple of years. Um, Trump allies aren't happy with the FBI. So like I say, I think that this battle could go on in different ways, but the funding stream that would have to come through one of the spending bills covering the General Services Administration, that's where we might see more happening there. Um, That bill was one of the things that got pulled last week. So there's not a final answer yet in the House and obviously a long way to go. And this project will take a good amount of time, too, to complete. Well, the current building, it was 12 years between the first appropriation for design and engineering till anyone actually moved in. You know, three administrations came and went before anyone actually moved into the building. So this is very uncertain, and it's fair to say at this point. Definitely. Lots to look come on this one. All right. Well, those are fun to follow, but I guess not if you're at the FBI and you do have a rat-infested building. I don't care what you think of an agency. Nobody should have rats in the building unless it's a lab. All right. The shutdown. Friday night, midnight, it would happen unless something happens. What does it look like now up there on the Hill? Going into the weekend, there wasn't a consensus. Uh, we had a lot of talk in couple of recent days about a laddered continuing resolution. This was an idea that the new speaker, Mike Johnson, had been floating, where some agencies covered by some of the bills would get one date and others would get a later date. Um, Some of the timing they were talked about shifted. Uh, That was not an idea that was resonating with Senate appropriators, including the chair over there, Patty Murray. So I think it's, you know, a real live question. Will the government be funded by Friday at midnight? There's five days here to get something done. And as we saw last time around, it was looking really grim on the morning of September 30th. And by the mid-afternoon, we we had a path forward, although obviously for Kevin McCarthy came at the cost of his speakership. So a lot of dynamics going in here. We do have uh, next week, the federal holiday for Thanksgiving. There is, I think, some real pressure to get something done here and figure out a path forward. But, you know, going into the weekend, there was a lot of uncertainty about what that would look like. And so inevitably, if you're smart and you run a government agency, you're probably thinking about what do I do if we have to shut down going into the coming weekend. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And you can imagine all sorts of distortions that would happen with the so-called laddered to shutdown. Suppose the Navy and the Defense Department were covered, but DHS was shut down, then that means the Navy couldn't talk to the Coast Guard, for example, because the Coast Guard would be moored in place. Yes, except for those accepted personnel, as you know, sometimes they used to talk more about essential, but it's more accepted from a shutdown. People who would stay on duty, those operations continue to go on, obviously just unpaid. And people working unhappily at TSA desks next weekend, that might be a, a recipe for disaster with the travel season coming up. Yeah, I think that that's that's part of the confusion is, you know, having staggered dates doesn't necessarily work for people. And you could create, you know, it's a laddered CR today, but it's a staggered shutdown potentially in the future. And meanwhile, there are also some authorizations that still haven't happened and those need to occur. 
if there's funding, you also need the authorization, such as the NDAA, but a couple of other major pieces. The NDAA is a big one. That's a bill that both the House and Senate have passed. The House has named its negotiators. The Senate hasn't. Last week, we saw House Armed Services Chair Mike Rogers call on the Senate to take that kind of formal formality step to name their negotiators. So we'll see if that happens in the coming days. But uh, there is a path by the end of the year, I think, to get that bill over the line. There was broad agreement about the top line spending, but not about some of the details in there and some of the writers. So they do have things to work out. Another one is the FAA, which was extended through the end of the year by the last CR. Uh, That one seems a little bit stalled. The House has passed a bill. The Senate talks are at an impasse. So they may not deal with that in this coming CR, but that is something that they'll be looking to do, obviously, by the end of the year, because an authorization needs to be in place for some of those operations separate from spending. And the third big authorization, the farm bill that's out there, we saw a growing consensus recently for a one-year extension of that legislation. Um, They've argued that three months here or there doesn't really help a farmer when you're growing for the whole season. So I think we'll see a one-year extension of that at some point, whether that happens right away in the CR that's coming up this week with all the other issues there or another piece of legislation. That's a big one there. And then one final one is there's an important surveillance power that's expiring at the end of the year and talks are starting to ramp up there. You'll hear Section 702 talked about a lot. That's one that needs to be in place for some intelligence activities and important surveillance matters. So that one will be gearing up in the discussions as well. That's intelligence community related Section 702. That is. It's about surveillance, I think, of non-U.S. persons, but um, some people want to change the way that provision operates. So it's it's not just a slam dunk straight extension on that either. There could be some calls for an overhaul. And in the meantime, there is the question of aid to Israel and aid to Ukraine, and that's turned into kind of a mess on the Hill, too, hasn't it? It has. The packaging of that is the key question right now. There is support even on Speaker Mike Johnson for Israel aid and Ukraine aid, but maybe separate. And then what do you pair with those things if they move separately? We saw with Israel, it was about clawing back some of the IRS money that was provided in 2022. That didn't go over well with Democrats in the Ukraine question. Do you put border provisions with that, not just border funding, but also some restrictions that Republicans want? We saw Senate Republicans call for that last week. So I don't know that that's a question that will be answered in time for the CR. It seems like that could go much longer as they figure out what exactly to do there. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Thank you for that complete rundown. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Homeland Security Department has long focused on immigration statistics. Now, under a new office, DHS plans to centralize statistical activities occurring across its components. Officials want the initiative to bring more evidence-based decision-making to DHS. Well, this will require data quality standards and buy-in from the components. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday reports. The Department of Homeland Security is pledging to promote greater transparency and data-driven analysis through the Office of Homeland Security Statistics. That new organization will replace and expand on DHS's Office of Immigration Statistics. While immigration-related data will continue to be a major focus of OHSS, the new office will also publish reports on areas ranging from law enforcement use of force incidents to cyber attacks on federal networks. In establishing this new office... We'll begin releasing data more quickly with greater granularity and covering a broader scope of DHS activities. Simply growing the reporting and data governance that accompanies it will be a big undertaking, and it goes without saying that DHS data are important. 
That's Mark Rosenblum, the executive director of the new OHSS. Rosenblum and other officials gathered at DHS headquarters on Thursday to mark the opening of the office. It's another coming-of-age moment for DHS. This department, the newest federal department, has been the largest domestically focused federal department without an OMB-recognized independent statistical unit. That changes today with the creation of the Office of Homeland Security Statistics. Robert Silvers is Undersecretary of Homeland Security for Strategy, Policy, and Plans. We are maturing this department. We are going from ad hoc to institutionalized and systematic. And we are creating independence and integrity in our data, which is only a good thing for the American people and those who are vested with responsibility to make very consequential decisions in everything from counterterrorism, cybersecurity, trade and travel facilitation, immigration, and much, much more. The new office will help bring DHS in line with the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act of 2018, known as the Evidence Act. The law requires agencies to make their data accessible and to support their policymaking through statistical evidence. But DHS's new office will have to rely on data generated by the department's many frontline organizations. Karen Orvis, chief statistician of the United States, also addressed DHS leaders during the inauguration event last week. She says close coordination will be essential. I can't state how critical this is, honestly. The effectiveness of the OHSS is going to depend largely on the support from all of you in this room. And this will be by participating in the development and the implementation of department-wide data quality and confidentiality standards and policies by providing your program data to this new office and working with them to help them understand and unlock the value of that data for evidence building by enabling and supporting them to fulfill their responsibilities of a statistical agency or unit as laid out in the Evidence Act. Fulfilling those responsibilities will require DHS to adopt enterprise data standards. OHSS plans to work with DHS's chief data officer to define how operational data will be stored in systems, as well as how to translate that information into statistical data. Those standards will help trace DHS statistics back to their source, ensuring OHSS reports are accurate, independent, and trustworthy. A key responsibility of the new office will be managing DHS's statistical system of record that will churn out public reports. In the coming weeks, the Statistics Office will publish the first of a new monthly immigration report. Here's Mark Rosenblum again. This is a big step forward for an office that until recently published data annually a few years late. So we're, we're, we're really upping our game. And even as it expands on the former Office of Immigration Statistics, immigration-related data will continue to be a major focus for OHSS. 23 out of the 25 data sets the office has received so far are related to immigration. And the new Migration Analysis Center will be housed at the office. The center will be central to collecting data and producing reports on immigration enforcement and migration trends. But in the coming weeks, OHSS plans to release two reports on non-immigration areas. The first will focus on counterfeit and pirated goods seized by Customs and Border Protection and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And the second report will provide data on all use-of-force incidents recorded by DHS law enforcement agencies in fiscal 2022. DHS employs approximately 80,000 law enforcement officers across its various components. 
Officials say releasing the use of force data will help boost transparency and accountability. By the end of next year, OHSS will also release reports on disaster deployments, airport security operations, maritime response operations, and federal cybersecurity incidents. Tom Warmer is branch chief for Homeland Security Response Data. This is just the start of our expansion. In the coming years, we will both expand to new domains, such as infrastructure protection, and add additional reports within each of these domains. As we work across the department to improve data quality and validate statistical standards, we will improve these reports to include additional data and statistical analysis when possible. Ultimately, the new office's aim is to become a recognized federal statistical unit under the Evidence Act. Those organizations are recognized by the White House Office of Management and Budget as demonstrating the highest commitments to generating publicly available data and statistics with integrity, objectivity, and accuracy. And Rosenblum says meeting those tenets will also bring benefits to DHS leaders. Everything we do to fulfill the fundamental principles for federal statistical agencies that are outlined in the Evidence Act will further support this mission and further increase the rigor and the consistency of publicly available DHS data. We depend on and really have such a strong partnership with the operational components. We've really grown uh, that working relationship, and it's, it's, it's a huge part of what we do, and that we continue to play such a, a key role supporting leadership decision-making. Justin Doubleday, Federal News Network. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 